Welcome to the Today is a Good Day podcast, a podcast to bring you a new point of support as you navigate your NICU journey. Today is a Good Day is here to be a part of your conversations, whether your baby was born prematurely, has special needs, or if your family is grieving a loss. The voices you will hear on the Today is a Good Day podcast are personal stories from people who have been there. Please don't forget to hit subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast listening app. Grief can look different for everyone. Grief is a process that can include people who have experienced the loss of a pregnancy, infant, or those who have living children in addition to children who have passed away. People can experience grief shortly after a loss, but it can also last for years, brought to mind by milestones that are delayed or missed and due dates that approach on the calendar. Heidi Langel is a music therapist, certified complex trauma practitioner, and certified birth and bereavement doula at the Maternal Wellness Center with a dual master of music therapy and professional counseling degree from Temple University. In addition to being a PhD resident at Drexel University, Heidi provides lectures, supervision, and clinical programming solutions to healthcare professionals throughout the United States and Canada. Heidi is also a lost mom, familiar with the grief process, having experienced it herself. I am grateful to have Heidi here with us today to learn from you, to hear about your story. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. My pleasure. Can you give us a quick overview of the three areas you're going to discuss with us? Absolutely. So first, I want to talk a little bit about creating spaces for grief without being overwhelmed by grief. We're also going to talk about how to plan ahead to honor grief and create spaces for that. And then also just talk a little bit about consistent self-care. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So much of so many of us have experienced loss in different ways. I'm a lost mom. You shared you're a lost mom as well. And loss looks different for different people, whether it was an early pregnancy loss or a full-term baby or a loss after a child was born. But when we talk about grief and we look at what that means, a lot of times we avoid it. Why, why do we avoid grief? Yeah, I think it looks different in every culture, but certainly in the United States, there is a real stigma around grief. Um, people aren't really taught, you know, how how do you grieve? I don't know. It feels so foreign, so um, unfamiliar. And so I think because it's not talked about very much, there's a stigma that happens then around it where grief is perceived as something that's threatening or you know, even wrong. So um, I think that causes people to feel uncertain about how to travel through their own grief process. Um, and then when they don't have, you know, anything to really connect to, um, that creates a silence, right? And so it's just kind of this like circle of silence that happens. And I think the other big thing that happens is you know, we're humans, we don't really want to feel hard things. You know, we, I was just talking with someone about this today that we'd rather kind of skip over anger, resentment, fear, longing, sadness. I mean, who wants to feel those things, right? We only want to feel the the things that are enjoyable. So I think sometimes people, um, when they're going through infant loss in particular, there's this um, fear that if they start to feel anything negative, they might never stop. Hmm. And so um, rather than allowing themselves to 
feel a little bit at a time or even kind of have like a controlled relationship with some of the harder feelings, um, th those harder feelings just get kind of shut down. You talk about kind of managing through those feelings. So much is going through my mind, Heidi, I have to tell you right now. I feel like we could talk for about three hours on on this topic. Uh, but when we when we talk about grief and how hard it is to process, is there a way that we can engage with grief in in a healthy way? Yeah. So I think, you know, people don't um, generally realize that there, you know, there's lots of um, research on grief. There's like grief specialists, right? And so this is kind of a phenomenon that people have really tried to understand. And in doing so, they've discovered that there is actually something called a grief style. And there's also something called grief strategies. Um, and there's an important distinction between them. I think when you think about grief styles, it's easiest to think about maybe um, almost like a, a personality of grief. So some people, their grief style might be um, what we call intuitive. And that, as you might imagine, might uh, present more as being um, connected to the grief in an emotional way. But then there's another style that's called instrumental grief. And that is when people connect to grief in more of a cognitive or thought-based way. Um, and then I think the more common option uh, or version that people fall into is actually a blended style. So they might be predominantly an intuitive griever with a little bit of instrumental grieving, or it might swap. Um, I think the biggest challenge is that um, usually if there's two people grieving, they're not going to have the same style and they're not going to have the same strategies. So when I start working with a couple who's just lost a baby or um, has gone through a pregnancy loss, I think probably in the first session I try to say to them, you you are not going to grieve the same. Like I can't predict that 100%, but I can almost guarantee that mm -hmm your grief styles and strategies are going to be different. So if we can just out of the gate, you know, work with an acceptance towards one another um, and kind of let, let your partner off the hook a little bit if the way that they're acting or grieving isn't what you want or isn't what you expect. So, um, you know, I find that when people start to realize, oh, yeah, I am more of an intuitive griever or I'm more of an instrumental griever, they then they start to feel kind of normal, like within their grief, like, oh yeah, this is okay, I get it. This is how I deal with um, this particular loss. Because um, as we know, there are many losses that happen throughout a NICU journey or um, life in general, right? So and do you find that it's more helpful once you kind of can find that label to put on what style grief that you are experiencing? I think I don't like to label people or feelings, but, you know, because I think that can create kind of a systemic structure that some sometimes can be not helpful, mm -hmm. right? But um, I think people feel less lost, right? Like they're, they're not swirling around quite as much or they don't feel so disoriented if they understand that there is a general kind of norm that these categories have been made from so they can say, Oh, you know, if like an, a NICU mom, for instance, if if she's talking to someone else in the NICU, she might say, 
you know, my husband's been working on this ratty old car for like six hours a day, every weekend day, and he's driving me insane. And like, I want him to come inside and just sit with me and like cry for a little bit. And, you know, so that's, those are two examples, instrumental versus intuitive, working on a car, you know, it's a very cognitive task. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you, if you could give some examples mm -hmm. of these different styles of what that looks like. Yeah, yeah. So if we go with that example, um, you know, let's say you have a couple that they have a living child, then they had a subsequent pregnancy and they had a loss. Um, so they're already, you know, kind of in this like rut of life, you know, parenting their living child and then they have a loss. Um, sometimes it's it's pretty common for one partner to choose something that's fairly distracting and fairly cognitive. So, you know, get home from work, have dinner with the family, then go out into the garage and work until midnight on the car. And meanwhile, the other partner's inside, you know, bawling her eyes out um, after she puts the living child to bed. And she wants her partner to come in and sit with her and comfort her because she's in the middle of an intuitive you know, she's using an intuitive style of grief. Um, and so there can be a lot of resentment that builds up over time when I think people perceive that their partner is choosing to grieve in a certain style, and they're really not. You know, a lot of these choices um, are subconscious. They're really, a lot of them are not conscious choices. Um, I think Something else that's important to keep in mind is that when people go through grief, it is a form of trauma. Um, and a lot of, you know, NICU parents are coming out of some kind of trauma, whether it's a birth trauma or multiple traumas in the NICU. So the the central nervous system has to be able to adjust to all of that. And all of those things happen on a subconscious level as well. And do you find, I mean, I, I look at our own personal journey when our daughter had passed away in the NICU, my husband was really trying to be the strong one. So I'm not quite sure he ever even took the opportunity mm -hmm. to grieve at all because he was trying to hold it all together. We went back to Claire, who was still fighting every day. I mean, does that play into it as well? Absolutely. That delayed grief? Absolutely. I work with uh, many couples where it's uh, it's kind of like a tag team almost approach where Oftentimes, um, if it's a, if it's um, you know a hetero couple, like the mom will be in in the NICU and the dad will be, you know, going to work or handling this or that, right? And so, like the mom takes the bulk of that emotional energy and mental bandwidth um, for the NICU stay, and then just like you said, dad is like holding all the other pieces of life together outside of the NICU because that world has to keep going. And then what we often see at the maternal wellness centers when a baby comes home, dad crashes, mom crashes, or they swap. And so like then mom is, you know, whatever, however it works out, usually it's like one's up, one's down. And mm -hmm. so, and I think a lot of that has to do with the stigma that we were talking about because um, and we'll talk a little bit about, you know, if if people make space for smaller moments of grief expression or coping, um, you know, if you picture letting steam out of out of a tea kettle, you don't want to open it up all at once and let it explode. You want to you want the steam to come out a little bit at a time. 
Um, and so I think a lot of times when you have one partner kind of tanking and the other one holding it together, um, it that really is a is a example of people just not feeling comfortable because mm-hmm. of these societal expectations with processing little pieces of their grief. And staying strong, trying to be the strong Absolutely. person, keep it's, moving forward. Yeah, it's good intentions. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not malicious in any way or, no. or um but it's just finding the space to to uh be able to grieve. And th- and that mm-hmm. grief, as we talked about earlier, that grief can be around a loss. It can be around a uh, a due date mm-hmm. that was missed because a baby was born mm-hmm. prematurely mm-hmm. or around anniversaries. We hear that a lot from families mm-hmm. that that first year anniversary hits. So a lot of these strategies relate to any of those situations. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, uh, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about. What are some of the different strategies that you've seen people use or you, you talk with your uh, families about during their grief process? Yeah, there's, um, there's, kind of four umbrella categories. So there's emotions, there's thoughts, there's behaviors, and then religion and spirituality. So people can, I recommend under the help of a, with a therapist or, you know, within some kind of therapeutic context, um, start to identify um, the emotions that are coming up most frequently for them. So that there's a space to kind of like put them out on the table and be like, here it is. Here's, here's what's what, <laughs> you know. I often um, give the example of like a buffet of feelings, um, thoughts, behaviors. Um, once you can see what's on the table, then you can say, well, it looks like those bananas are rotten. I'm not going to eat those. I'm getting a great visual right now of seeing this yeah. buffet of emotions across yeah. and going, I'll have some of that. I don't want any of that. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Or just like, that doesn't taste good. Like, <laughs> So, and, and, but then you can look at something and be like, that looks like it'd be really good for my body. Mm -hmm. That looks like I would really enjoy eating that. Oh, let me pick this one up because my partner likes that. And you know what I mean? So, you know, you put out your emotions, your thoughts, your behaviors, any kind of like social or spiritual support. And when you put it out, there's no judgment. You're just observing what's there because whether or not you put it out on the buffet, it's still living in your body. There's lots of research that talks about how um, when emotions, thoughts um, get trapped in the body, that translates into disease over time, mm-hmm. um, whether it's um, chemistry imbalances in the brain, blood pressure, musculoskeletal systems, organs, that it's all impacted. So we might as well, without judgment, just get it out of our bodies and put it out where we can see it so we can decide what we want to let go, what we want to keep. This this is great. And do you recommend uh, journaling or is that a good way to kind of manage through some of these? Yeah. Um, it depends on what, you know, I, I specialize in trauma related to birth and mm-hmm. loss. Um, and so you want to be careful. Um, sometimes journaling can be re-triggering. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes it can um, make people feel unsafe in their bodies. So I think it depends, you know, what you're looking at, when you're looking at it, how how far out from a trauma you are. But I do encourage people, uh, I really believe in this idea of, of non-judgmental observation. So, you know, if someone says, I just feel like I want to punch a wall at least once a day, then I'll be like, great, 
I'm so glad you mentioned that. Mm-hmm. Um, what's happening when you want to punch a wall? Um, what has happened before, you know, in the moments or the hours leading up to that? Um, other than rage, what other feelings could energize that punch that's going into the wall? What else needs to come out of your body, right? And so um, I think that journaling can be a a great way to kind of, again, get it out of your body Mm -hmm. onto paper. Also talking with, with like someone you really trust, not like a judgmental, you know, friend or well-meaning relative that doesn't, really understand the complexities of the decisions you're having to make and the things that you've encountered. Um, You know, sometimes religious communities can be really helpful and sometimes they can be really unhelpful. You know, there's all of these people that we come across in our Mm -hmm. lives. As you know, they have like, unless you've walked through it, limited capacity to Mm -hmm. really understand the complexity of everything. But you know, when you ask about journaling, I think of that as a, a way of getting those thoughts and emotions out of your mind and out of your body and somewhere else. And so I think when I was talking about being afraid of emotions, um, I think a lot of people imagine, well, if I, if I get it out of my body and I have to look at the buffet, I'm not going to like what I see. That doesn't sound appealing. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do that either. Um, but I think getting some distance, you know, like, like anything you were talking about playing golf or like any kind of cognitive, um, uh, task that we engage in, you always need some perspective. If you're going to learn, if you're going to, you know, you zoom in, you zoom out, Mm -hmm. zoom in, zoom out. So, um, I think there's lots of really helpful ways to do that. When we talk about grief and we talk about milestones coming up ahead, and making them, finding ways to honor those milestones and make them positive when they oftentimes can be sad or, or triggering or, or very upsetting. What do you think about planning ahead for those milestones and, and those losses that may have occurred? Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing that just came to mind as I was listening to you was the word and. Milestones and celebrations, losses, and acknowledging what you've gained. Um, That might sound weird, but we live in a dichotomous society that wants to put the word but in between everything. Um, If you're, you know, if you're sad, you can't be happy. Um, it, 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 you know, our perspectives are constantly just being split. And, you know, as someone who's experienced loss myself, I've learned that it's, it, I don't know, maybe it would be easier if you could split it all the time, but you can't. It's all interwoven. So, you know, when I think about if we take, for instance, the example with your twins in mind, um, I imagine that having a living child is also a reminder of having a child who's not here. Yes, every birthday. Every birthday. Um, probably, I don't know if this has faded for you with time, but maybe their initial due date. Um, 
And for a lot of moms that I work with who have experienced a twin loss, um, there's, you know, within the first like two years of the loss, there's, there's a lot of milestones that happen for the living child. And then there's a fresh memory of the losses that also happened. Like if, if a twin needed a lot of um, medical intervention, there's like, well, this is the day that they're, you know, they had their heart surgery. And then this is the day that they, we found out they had an infection. And then this is the day. And so there's just, this is the way the brain works when it's been through trauma is that it tries to categorize everything to help organize. Um, but then there's all of this, these other feelings about it. And so um, the other thing that I encounter a lot is people who think of anniversaries as indicators of how their body failed. Mm -hmm. And when you have a living child paired with that, it's real trippy because you have like proof of what was su supposed to happen. And then you also have this reminder of how the body failed. Right. Yes. And so I think it's important to hold both, to not necessarily try to draw a line in the sand mm -hmm. and say, I'm only going to think about the happy things. Because again, you're going to feel it. I don't know. I'm a very intuitive and empathic person. So I feel things in my body pretty clearly. And so I know for myself, I'm probably going to feel a pang of loss or a, a pang of sadness or regret or anger or whatever it might be. So I'd rather just acknowledge it. Yeah, this is horrible. Yes, this child should be here. Yes, this is the day that we anticipated, you know, having a baby around mm -hmm. this point in time. So, you know, to give you maybe um, a practical example, um, thinking about celebrating a living child who shares a birthday with a, a child who's passed away might for some people look like um, having two cakes or having a main cake and then a little cake or a fruit tart or a cupcake. Um, it might look like writing a message to that, mm -hmm. that baby every year on their birthday, you know, the morning of their birthday before they go and celebrate their living child. Maybe it's taking time to um, journal, right? Write a message to that child. When I think what you said about small small things, a lot mm -hmm. of times I think people think about grief or or making memories or setting up these traditions that have to be big and grand, and it not it isn't necessarily that. I'm, for us, we put Claire's photos up mm -hmm. in our kitchen mm -hmm. on the windowsill, and Mary's photo as well mm -hmm. goes up mm -hmm. for their birthday mm -hmm. month. Same with our our younger daughter who was born full term. Mm -hmm. They get kind of the the window sill, mm -hmm. um, and our son who passed away. You know, mm -hmm. we have photos of him throughout, and we kind of celebrate those. And and also visits to the cemetery to put a flower just on the tombstone. We go as a family and mm -hmm. do that. Mm -hmm. But small moments, not necessarily big grand. And the big grand are great too. You know, I think right. it's it's whatever works for your family. I wanted to go back to what you said about two years. I I completely agree with that. I think the it's it's interesting in our personal story. We did have that surviving twin who was very sick, and we weren't sure she was going to come home with us. But 
when she did, we were very focused on her growth, her early mm-hmm. intervention, trying to help her to hit her milestones mm-hmm. in her adjusted age. And it was that two-year mark, Heidi, mm-hmm. that got us both, mm-hmm. my husband and me, <laughs> where we went, whoa, because we never took the time to fully grieve our daughter, Mary, when mm-hmm. she passed. Mm-hmm. And we recognized that mm-hmm. when our son had passed away in 2018, my husband said to me when we were coming up on some of the milestones, mm-hmm. he said, hey, we're hitting this time mm-hmm. that it hit us for Mary. Mm-hmm. We should stop and reflect Mm-hmm. and see what we might need as a family at this time. What a good call on his part. I know, Look I at know. He's go. a keeper. <laughs> I'm a fan. <laughs> yes. But but I do think that two-year mark, because you become, as, as the parent of yeah. one surviving twin, one who passed, you become very committed to the surviving twin's success, and you, mm-hmm. and you don't necessarily take that time that you need to uh, to grieve. And I also love what you said about kind of combining that joy and sadness mm-hmm. And I think that that can happen in different ways. I, I mean, I remember the day our son was born, and, and we knew he would pass after he was born. He had trisomy 18. But the I, I remember coming, waking up with a C-section, and I hear laughter in the room next door. And it was the nurses working with my husband to try and make the memories with William with his footprints and some cast molds and they were running into some challenges while doing it because he was such a sweet little little baby yeah. so little yeah. when he was born but I can still to this day hear that laughter on mm-hmm. a day that was really difficult mm-hmm. and full of a lot of sadness mm-hmm. that our son had passed mm-hmm. but those joyful moments also stay with me of the the time that the hospital team took to make those memories Mm -hmm. and to have those items for us to take home with us and how much they cared about William's life as much as we did. Mm -hmm. I have a similar but different story. After my very first loss, um, butterflies became really symbolic and really meaningful to me. And um, they were kind of the sign of, of that baby, right? So whenever I would see a butterfly, I would Speaking of little moments, I would just say hello to my baby, you know? And um, so when Christmas came around the year after that loss, I was like, I'm going to get a butterfly ornament to put on the tree. It's got this beautiful ornament, you know? And it had a, like a clip mm-hmm. on the back for you to clip onto the tree. So I take it out, and I'm having this moment. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I love you, baby, blah, blah, blah. I go to squeeze it. It broke. Oh, no. The head fell off. I was like, my baby's head! You know, oh, no. I was like, I can't, you know. And for some reason, I just cracked up. I was like, of course. Of course, my beautiful grief moment was broken, you know? Of course right. it didn't go well, like, because that's what life is, mm-hmm. right? It's like this constant, like, for me at least, like, striving to make meaning, striving to understand, striving to honor what we've lost. I don't know. It's a it's a mixed bag, you know? It is. It is for sure. And I know we're going to talk about self-care, but before we do that, I have a really important question for you that we hear a lot from families that we work with. Mm-hmm. And it is it is one that I fully understand. I have a daughter who was born four months premature. Her milestones did not look like our friend's baby's milestones yeah. when she was little. Mm-hmm. But one of the, the big struggles for a lot of families is watching their technically six-month-old. Yeah. 
and how that baby might be compared to a cousin who was also yeah. born at the at the full term at the yeah. same time and is the same age, quote unquote, right? Right. But how do you that, because that's a sense of grief. That's that's loss that you're going through mm-hmm. that you think, well, my baby should be sitting up or crawling or rolling around. How do you help families get through that? I mean, I fully sympathize with with again this like visual reminder of how something didn't go right, quote unquote. Um, and at the same time, say to them, you know, if your baby was born, like let's say it's cousins that had like a due date that was two weeks apart and they were both full term, they'd still be doing things differently. They'd still be rolling over at different times. Mm-hmm. There'd still be one parent that says, maybe you rolled over. And, you know, the other one's over there going, what? My baby didn't roll over yet. And so it's, uh, I think, a really unfair comparison to um, that, that I think parents place on themselves to try to be like, stretching their expectations out into the future to match, you know, a baby that was born under different circumstances. And so I really just encourage people to frame their baby within the context of their baby, you know, within the context of um, the challenges that that baby and those parents have worked together to overcome. And, you know, full-term babies aren't perfect either. You know, they have plenty of issues. Um, and in in terms of like, I don't mean to say that in a negative way, but there's plenty to manage. You know, there's always milestones to meet. And so I think if parents um, can make a space for that grief um, of knowing that they have to think differently like you were talking about um, really wanting to make sure that your daughter's early intervention care was on track. Like that's a big job, mm-hmm. you know. It's a it's a lot of mental bandwidth. But it's her. It's her. You know, it's just her. <laughs> so um, I think really staying focused on the child in front of you mm-hmm. is the best way to go. It sounds simple, but I don't know – I don't know a better way, mm-hmm. you know. And we used to celebrate every one of those milestones. We just said anything she did was extraordinary. That's right. <laughs> we, we That's were, right. We were so happy she could crawl up a, a, two steps yeah. because we didn't know if she was going to be able to. Right. And celebrating each of those milestones in its own place and yeah. when it was and when it happened for her was so big for yeah. us because we just celebrated every single thing that we that she did. Absolutely. And um, that's so you were filling your joy tank. We were filling our joy tank. That's for sure. <laughs> after working her very hard at yeah. doing all of her early intervention exercises, I believe it. Self care is something we talk about so frequently, Heidi, and I'm sure you talk about it a lot. And sometimes I think it goes in one ear and out the other because it is so hard for parents to think about self care, to think about what that could mean. Talk to us about it. Sure, I think the biggest maybe misconception about self-care is that it has to be big and grand and that, um, you know, self-care is kind of, uh, in recent years, it's something that's marketed to people now. And with that marketing is a time commitment. Mm -hmm. Like take a, go to the spa or take a bubble bath and use this product to take your bubble bath. Right. Well, I don't have time, you know? 
Um, maybe I have time for a bubble bath tomorrow for 20 minutes. Um, but maybe today I have five minutes to sit with my eyes closed and not look at a screen and listen to a piece of music and focus on my breathing. That's, that's it. You know, um, when I'm working with moms who are moms of newborns, I go down to one minute, one minute, um, you know, self-care strategies such as focusing on your breathing for mm -hmm. one minute or taking a drink of water and paying attention to how your body feels after you swallow the water. Just slowing down. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, they, they can be a minute, a, a piece of self-care. It could be a minute. It could be five. It could be 20. It could be an hour. It could be half a day. It could be a whole day. It could be a weekend. But I think it's really important to recognize that there's all these different um, levels of investment, really, that we're talking about when we're looking at caring for our bodies. So if we can break it down into things that are manageable, I think parents will feel a lot more likely to be able to, you know, connect, like kind of lock into these um, different things that they could do. And I think another important piece is to um, slow down enough to ask your body what it needs. Um, so some days my body needs to go hike in an open field, and some days my body needs to sit on a chair under a blanket in a dark room. And it might be the same amount of time, but it's a different need based on the stressors that I'm encountering. And what you said about one minute, I mean, breaking it down to one minute mm -hmm. seems so doable in a lot of yeah. ways. Instead of it having to be, well, I have to go, like you said, a, a big commitment of time and I can't do that. I have a baby in the NICU. I, I have other kids at home to take care of. I mean, we talk about self-care frequently yeah. in this podcast. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, it's, gr it's grueling. But, but the, it the is NICU so life. important. We just launched a new series of breathing exercises to help with stress management through a mindfulness instructor who joined us this season as well, oh, Tig O'Malley. But I think what you said about just focusing on your breathing, that's what we talk mm -hmm. about a lot, and it can make such a difference. When that two years hit, breathing, breathing, mindfulness, mm -hmm. learning how to just take a minute. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it was five minutes for me, the emergency mm -hmm. mindfulness app that mm -hmm. I did for five minutes. Yeah, But it was a helpful tool that you know, we can take our breath everywhere, right? That's right. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> for that, for that self-care, for sure. Mm -hmm. And with the, I also, I know we've shared, talked before, but some of those ideas around the ice water that you were talking about, a quick shower, doesn't have to be a lengthy bath, but like a mm -hmm. quick shower just to get refreshed, mm -hmm. changing clothes, right? Mm-hmm. Take Especially it. in the COVID uh, life, changing yes. clothes, can yes. you're, it's like it's a whole new day. It is. <laughs> yeah, it's 2 yes. p.m. The day is just beginning. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's great. Well, you have just been a source of wonderful knowledge today, Heidi. So glad to have you here and to talk with you about this important topic, which touches so many of us in many different ways, but really appreciate your time and your advice. So happy to be here. Thanks again.